Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 3.18 through 4.6. You can follow along in your Bibles or in the scripture guide. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This is the word of the Lord, and it is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, good morning. All right, so we're finishing our six-week study of Colossians today. And I'm not sure how many of you know this, but uh, Todd and Daniel prepared the sermon series before we get started, and they send it to me in advance. So I'm always excited to see what I get to preach on. (laughs) And then I saw today's passage. And I went, really? And they just smiled at me and said nothing. Um, You know, so what can I say? Here we go. All right, thanks, Todd. Thanks, Daniel. I'll get you back someday. All right, now, over these last six weeks, we've been focusing on the fact that Jesus is supreme. We've been talking about the supremacy of Christ, the fact that he's supreme, and the implications of his supremacy for our thinking and our actions and our lives together. And I'm actually going to pick up where Daniel left off, and you see this up on your screen now. This is not the same passage that was read. It was what was read last week. Um, Daniel told us, based on this passage, and we're not going to read it through, that the resurrection is our starting place, that his death is, our, is fuel for our daily struggle, and that struggle is against sin and towards sanctification, and his glory is the hope of our future. Now, what he didn't do is he didn't talk about verses 5 through 17, which took me a little bit aback um, because um, as I prepared for 18, I was expecting him to get through 17. And he didn't do it. So we're going to do that first, okay? So we're going to zip through uh, verses 5 through 17 here. And I know you can't read that very well. It's pretty small. But I'll be reading it aloud. And just just follow along with your mind as I go. Therefore, now that's a big word in Scripture. Whenever it says therefore, think about what's already been said, everything Daniel said last week and even before that. And therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, 
And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So last week in our community group, uh, as we were thinking about what what Daniel had talked about, we were thinking about applications. I said, well, you know, I'm going to cheat because I got Paul's applications. And so we went through this. And, um, uh, and, and I'm going to tell you, Gene Reppert did a great job of summing up what we talked about in community group, and I want to give her credit for that, because she said, sanctification leads to our new identity. That sums up what Daniel was saying. <clears throat> and these verses 5 through 17 say, we're going to put off some things, we're going to put on some things, and we're all equal. All right? That's the context to which we now come to our passage today. All right? You don't read it. Out of the blue, you don't just use it as a proof text for something. I know people have. Um, But you don't do that. You've got to read it in this context. And in this context, if we were to turn to the remaining body of the letter before we get to the farewells that are at the end of the letter, which we're not going to cover in our sermon series, then we would get to this broad outline would look something like everyday home life, everyday prayer life, and everyday social life. Well, we ain't going to get through that either, okay? So we're going to focus on everyday home life. All right, that's what we're going to focus on today because we can't get through the rest of it uh, today, unfortunately. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word, um, for how it challenges us and it um, impacts us in ways that uh, cause us to change and to become more holy, to become sanctified, and to follow you. And Lord, we pray that these words today would uh, do that for us, that we would understand them, um, apply them in our hearts, and um, that your community would be... uh, matured because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we've already developed kind of the textual context of our passage. We have this new identity in Christ. We're putting off some things and we're putting on some things and we're all equal. Now I want to spend a couple of minutes understanding the cultural context into which Paul writes. Because the Greco-Roman notion of family at that time was based on this thing called paterfamilias. Okay, one word, paterfamilias. It kind of means head of the family or dad of the family. All right? The paterfamilias was the head of the household. He was the father or patriarch of the family. He had great power over the entire household. In fact, legally, he had the power of life and death over everyone that was in the family, which was his wife, his children, including his adult children, if they were still living in the home, and they usually were because they lived in large extended families. It would include his servants and his slaves. He could abandon a child after childbirth if he didn't want it. He could adopt children. He could do whatever he wanted. Actually, this will sound bad, but I think Daniel's dad had the paterfamilias whistle. Don't you think? <laughs> he had that down, okay? So that, was, that, that reminded me of that. Okay. He probably didn't do all that other stuff, but, you know, he had the whistle down. All right, so the Jewish notion of family life, though, was a lot different 
It really was a lot different. It was, centered on the power, uh, it was not centered on the power of the paterfamilias, but on the Jewish faith and its expression. Food regulations, worship practices, festivals, weekly Sabbath, all these were intended to show the differences between the Jews and the surrounding culture in which they lived. Fathers, though, did have great power in the Jewish family, but no one would have implied in a Jewish family that they were supreme because God is one. The Lord our God is one God, and we devote ourselves to our one God. But in both Greco-Roman and in Jewish writings of this period and even for centuries before, you will often find these interesting lists of how families should relate to each other. The first one is actually traced all the way back to Aristotle. So this, this, these lists where, where relationships are defined, husband and wife, father and children, master and slave, this is not unique to the Bible. These were, were found throughout the cultures and throughout the philosophies of the day. So if that's the case, then we might actually ask Paul, or ask of Paul, since we can't actually ask Paul, ask of his writings, why did he feel compelled to include this household code? And that's kind of the technical theological term for these. These are called household codes. So why did you write this household code here? And in a longer stretch, a longer passage that we're going to refer to frequently through the rest of our day-to-day in Ephesians 5 and 6, why did you write that? Why did you feel compelled to do that? And also, what's different? in the New Testament one versus the other, all right? Um, don't bring that slide up yet, yet, please, thanks. Okay, <laughs> all right, thanks, Jim. All right, now, um, let's turn to our passage then without all that cultural context and textual context. It says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, or in other translations, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, again, I want to start our look at this text, and I kind of joked about it at the beginning, and I'm, I'm not joking now. I, I know these words are controversial, potentially. I, I know that they have been abused. They've been cited out of context. They've been used as a justification and a context for abuse, and that should never be. So let me be very clear on that, okay? Be very, very clear on that. But here, wives are called to be subject to or submit to their husbands, and husbands are to love their wives. Now, this is fascinating to me. Because in the sister passage over in Ephesians, which we're going to look at in further depth in a moment, it actually is preceded by the text in Ephesians 5.21 that says, To everyone, be subject to one another. So everybody is supposed to be subject to one another, not just wives to husbands. And by the way, of course, we're supposed to love one another, right? Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So why does Paul call these things out this way? Why, why does he do this? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. And the first reason has to do with this idea of equality that he's already expounded upon. This idea of equality, husbands, wives, parents, children, slaves, masters, everybody equal, this would be a terribly dangerous, um, dangerous uh, idea and revolutionary idea in the culture. And frankly, it would be so threatening to the surrounding culture and government that the early church would have probably been utterly suppressed and destroyed. Paul's main concern in everything is that the gospel be preached and that the people of God be a community to which, in which the light of the gospel is so bright that people are attracted to it. In a word, then, Paul looks at the gospel and the work of the church as being transformative and not revolutionary. Now, people can disagree with that sometimes but I really think that's true. Paul really looked at the work of the church and the gospel 
as transforming people, not a revolt and a revolution in culture. So I think he felt compelled to some degree to write these rules here. Having said everyone is equal, he tells the community of believers that the exercise of this equality should have some order and structure and not lead to chaos within the body and not, would not lead to chaos in the relationship of the body of believers with those outside the church. But the second reason he calls these out is because the differences in these household codes uh, is because of the differences his household codes that he uh, describes here and in Ephesians has with the other household codes in the uh, culture. And I think this is the beauty of what Paul is writing here. So let's look at this word subject to or submit. It means submit. That's what it means. Okay, just in case you're wondering. But interestingly, in Greek, it's what's called middle voice. We don't talk about this in English. We don't have middle voice and active voice. Uh, or if we do, <laughs> I don't know when I'm using them. <laughs> Could be. Um, let's look at this uh, verb in the New Testament. Jim, put that up now. All right. The verb form, middle voice, of this verb occurs 38 times in the New Testament, 23 times in the Pauline literature, but only one time in Colossians. There appears to be a difference in the specific nuance of the term according to the voice in which it occurs, active or middle. When it occurs in the active voice, the power to subject belongs to God himself. This is evidenced in 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Romans, and Ephesians, cited there. In the middle voice, it describes a voluntary submission which resembles that of Christian humility. It may describe Christ's submission to God, church members to one another, believers submitting in the exercise of their prophetic gifts, or the proper order of wives. This latter abuse appeals to free agents to take a place of submission voluntarily. The term does not suggest slavery or servitude and certainly never calls for the husband to make his wife submit. If he could, her heart would not be in it. In this context, the word differs radically from the word which describes the role of children and slaves who are to obey. So this term is voluntary submission. Now, unfortunately, the new, the new American standard that we use makes it sound more like a command, but it's really not. It's not an imperative. It's a decision. It's a voluntary submission. Now, I'm going to tell you, household codes in the day did not offer that option, okay? Uh, it was not in the paterfamilias of the structure of the day. Uh, submission was not um, uh, voluntary, okay? It was pretty much required. Okay, And so uh, if it wasn't uh, delivered upon, in fact, it could be uh, punished. So this submission that Paul is calling for is actually radically different. Now, moreover, I want us to be very clear about what this text is not telling us. This text is not telling us anything about the role of women in society. It's not telling us anything about the role of women in the workplace. It is not telling us anything about the relationship even between men and women in the church. It's telling us about the relationship that a woman should have in deciding or, uh, about a marriage, really. It's about a future decision. It's about a decision that has to be made in the context of marriage to voluntarily submit. Now, I think we can get a little more insight into this passage if we look over at the parallel passage in Ephesians 5. Uh, Ephesians 5.33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. We'll get to that shortly. And the wife must see it to it that she respects her husband. Paul here uses the term respect. Now, this is an unusual word. It's, it's actually the same word that means reverence or awe. All right? Well, I got news for you. Paul is not calling on wives to worship their husbands. All right? Are we clear on that? 
All right? That's not what he means here. It's the same word, but that can't be what he means. This is all in the context of the supremacy of Christ. I mean, it would be silly for us to think that Paul is saying that that's what he's calling for. He's already declared, by the way, that women and men are equal. You don't worship an equal. What's he calling for? He's calling for respect. He's calling for admiration, a feeling of deep admiration for someone or something which is usually elicited by their abilities, qualities, or achievements. We respect someone when we admire what they've done. So wives are called on to voluntarily submit to their husbands and to voluntarily express a feeling of deep admiration for what they do and what they have done. Now, here's a really good question. Is it optional? I'll get back to you on that. Okay, hold that thought. Let's look at this word love. Now, the word love here is agape. Sure, most of you know that this word is unique in biblical writing. It's distinguished from brotherly love, or phylos, or erotic love, or eros. And agape love is the self-sacrificing love of Christ, most vividly displayed in his death on the cross for the sins of his followers. John 13, 34, which we've already read, Jesus calls us to an agape form of love for one another. Now, I can assure you, again, no other household code in the culture of the day calls on husbands to love their wives this way. All right, so this is a radical difference in what we see in Paul's household code here. So let's look, this, let's look at this further in a, looking deeper at Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Then the verse we've already read, Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. All right, let's look at the verb love in verse 25. Is this in middle voice? No, it's not in middle voice. It's an active voice. It's a command. All right? So, guys, I got news for you. It's an imperative. To love your wife with the love that Christ loved the church. (sighs) Let's just catalog what that means. Give yourself up for your wife. Sanctify her. Love her as you love yourself. Cherish her. By the way, as I pondered this, I realized that cherish includes the very admiration and respect that we've already discussed, but it expands on it. It's even bigger. Now, if you're a husband like me right now, you're thinking, I'm not doing very well. Thank goodness Nanette's in the nursery today. I'm, just, I'm really excited about that. But just in case you're wondering whether you're failing this, just turn and ask, look at your wife for a moment and, and see. But, well, maybe you should. Okay. Now, the remarkable thing about this text is not only what I've already pointed out, the voluntary submission, the respect, the, the agape love. The, the remarkable thing is how these two things interact. All right. Now, this I first learned about 15 years ago at a marriage conference that Nanette and I went to. And the general idea here is that if a husband better expresses 
servant love for his wife, which means giving himself up for her, loving her as himself and cherishing her, then the wife is more likely to express her respect for the husband. And if a wife expresses respect and admiration for what he has done and is doing in life, then her husband uh, is more likely to express his love. And unfortunately, the inverses are also true. A wife who has never loved finds it hard to respect. A husband who's never respected finds it hard to love. Just to bring this story home to you, I want to tell you two personal stories. All right, the first one is about me and Nanette. We've been married 40 years this year. Jeez, I'm an old man. Golly. We got married when we were 12. Um, all right. Well, I got the letters backwards. Oh, the numbers backwards. Okay, sorry. All right, for our 10th anniversary, Nanette gave me this kind of collage uh, that she put together that included some words that she had written and some, some pictures. Now, as, as background to this, uh, you need to understand that when we were engaged, all of our friends told us we were making a big mistake. That's all of our church friends told us we were making a big mistake. Thank you. We appreciate that very much, okay? This is what she wrote. Jim, what I love about you is you are so solid, so dependable, and you work so hard, yet no one would believe how silly you can be. Eh, okay. um, we are first and foremost Christians joined in love and belief. We were told we were too different, that it would never work. Look at us now. And Nook was a nickname I had for her for a long time, which I don't use too much anymore. All right, so for the next 15 years, she gave me that on our 10th anniversary. For the next 15 years, I would sometimes go and stand in front of this thing and just read that. I had no clue what was going on. No idea. I would usually do it when I was troubled. Okay? And I might have been troubled uh, about our relationship, that something was troubling me, that I was angry at her, uh, that I thought she was angry at me. That, um, or maybe I just felt overwhelmed and, and inadequate. Um, then we attended this marriage conference, and I finally understood why I would go and stand in front of this darn thing. All right? And it's because... This is her expression of respect for me. And the response of, of that for, within me was to go and love her more. All right? And that's kind of how this thing works. We have this idea, or, or the basis of this idea, is that husbands and wives should respect and love one another, and they should do so unconditionally. All right? We have this idea that we should love in, unconditionally, but we have to earn respect. That's probably not quite right. We should probably be respecting and admiring one another unconditionally. All right? That's why I said, by the way, I was going to get back to you about whether it's optional or not. Okay? I'm going to say something that sounds weird. Respect is voluntary, but it's not conditional. You have a choice as to whether you're going to express it. But you can't make that expression conditional on the actions of the person you're expressing it to if you want it to really change their lives. All right? These things reinforce one another, and that's what was happening to me. When I was troubled, I would go back and just read these words. It was extraordinarily powerful. And now that I understand this, we've actually taken this off the wall, and I had to go search it out of the attic to take a picture of that. Um, but I still remember it. It's still very powerful to me, and it really sums up. And, and what's really cool is when a marriage includes this kind of respect and love on both directions, it is truly the case that the sum is more than the parts. And the unity of the marriage will make it stand out and make it withstand whatever might come. That's my first story. My second story is a completely different context. You can go ahead and turn that off, Jim. Thanks. Uh, the, the, this is a completely different context. This is a context in which I'm a doctor. I was at work 
A colleague, another physician, who I will call Joe, because I can't tell you who he is, um, he's also my patient. And he came walking down the hall in the middle of the day, clearly distraught. I turned to my nurse and said, I'm going to be late for the next patient, which was probably already true, but it was going to be more true because I knew I had to sit down with Joe. This colleague, a highly regarded physician leader in the community, was distraught. He was overwhelmed. He had too much to do. He was at a breaking point. Today, we would call that, in the medical jargon, burnout. He was getting burned out. So I had this new lingo in my head and everything, and I sat down and talked to, to him. And, um, and I said, Joe, are you afraid that if you don't agree to do something, that if you say no to something, that you'll lose people's respect? Now, you've got to understand, Joe and I were sitting in the usual position of men talking to each other, which is this way. Women talk to each other this way, right? Men talk to each other this way, okay? You go, it's really true. You, you go and sit down with a guy. Most of the time, you're not going to sit across from him unless you got to. Uh, then you might. But most of the time, you're going to sit beside him if you got a choice. So we were, we were in two chairs in my office next to each other. So I said, do you reckon you might lose respect if you don't say yes to everything? His head turned so fast at me, I thought it was going to do a few 360s. It was unbelievable. And he said, how did you know that was true? And I said, well, I went to this conference recently. I didn't tell him it was a marriage conference, as a matter of fact. And um, what I told him is, you know what? Physicians are going to admire you more. They're going to have more respect for you if you say no, because they feel the same way. They're just as overwhelmed, and they don't feel like they can say no. And you're going to gain more respect from your peers by doing that than saying yes to everything. And then the most amazing thing happened. He turned to me and said, Jim, I love you. It wasn't awkward. It wasn't weird. But it's the response that happens when somebody expresses respect to somebody. The response from usually men and sometimes women is love. It's very, very weird. This is what Paul is calling men and women to in the context of marriage under the supremacy of Christ. Unconditional love and unconditional respect. Now let's take a brief look at the next two verses, okay? We've got to pick on the kids a little bit. Uh, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now it's very interesting as one reads the commentaries on Colossians that there's this enormous amount about wives submitting and men loving. And in a few verses, there's an enormous part about slavery which, by the way, I'm going to avoid today, okay? All right? We can talk about it another time. I'll talk about it any time. I already read about it, but I just don't have time to talk about it. All right? But there's very little written about children. It's kind of fascinating to me, you know? I think a part of it's because, well, it's kind of like self-evident. Of course they're going to obey their parents. Mm, well, me. Um, but let's think about this in the context of the larger passage, that sanctification leads to a new identity, leading to things we put off, things we put on, and equality. And in the context of the cultural paterfamilias, the utter power of the father over the child. Let's think about that. Now, first, children are to obey their parents. This sounds like it's the same as what the culture demands, but note the motivation is different, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. If Christ is supreme in the life of a young believer, and even though that young believer is in the sight of God equal to his or her parents, it is nonetheless pleasing to the Lord for the child to obey their parents. And I have bad news for you kids and you uh, teenagers out there. It's an imperative. It's not passive. It's not an option. 
Okay? It's like love for the hus- of the husband for the wife. It's a command. Now, why would this be pleasing to the Lord? Well, actually, this term could be pleasing to the Lord or pleasing in the Lord. It's the same word. Looking back to the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, Paul actually makes reference to the Ten Commandments. So obedience is pleasing to the Lord because it fulfills the fifth commandment. But it seems that this is also calling for this sense of order within the family and within the church community, which would be pleasing in the Lord as the wider culture looked in on this community to see if they would be attracted to it. And you only have to think about those times when you experience public embrace and disobedience of children to see how unattractive disobedience can be. But fathers, you're not to exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. I'll point out that the word for father here is sometimes used for father and mother. So I'll remind your mother, you mothers not to exasperate your children, but given the culture of paterfamilias, this is clearly aiming at fathers. All right? And we all know that fathers play a critical role in raising children, a role that they sometimes abdicate with devastating effects on the children and on the family and on our society. So what are fathers to actually avoid here? The definition of exasperate is to irritate or frustrate intensely. The Greek verb used here is defined in one lexicon as meaning to cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance of a challenge. All right? So what fathers are to avoid doing here is they're exhorted to raise their children in a way that they will do their utmost to avoid provoking a kind of rebellious attitude in them. And as men and fathers, we all know how this can work. I have shared with you before how angry I was at my own father one time when, as I was expecting encouragement and congratulations for a job well done, he dressed me down for not trying hard enough. The response was, I decided no one would ever outwork me, hence my wife said I worked so hard. But just as easily, I could have just quit and just said that heck with everything. would have been real easy to do that. You can tell I'm still bitter about that. I'm going to keep bringing it up. On the positive side, though, think of the power of a father in blessing a child. When a father encourages and congratulates a child, especially publicly, what that does to the child really of any age, even children outside the home, can truly be beyond measure. This morning we've looked at a couple of important relationships in this household code. Husbands and wives, children and fathers. I know a lot of you aren't married. Some of you are wondering... Uh, let, me, let me start over. Many of you are not married, you're not children, and you don't have children. So what does this mean to you? I think these ideas of submission to and unconditional respect for and uh, unconditional love for one another are very relevant. And perhaps sometime in one of your community group discussions, you could unpack that some more and see what that might look like as you live, as we all live together in community. We're at the end of the sermon in these series. Started out six weeks ago with Daniel showing that Jesus is supreme, supreme over all creation, supreme over the new creation, which is the church, and supreme over all the new creations, which are us. The next week, I looked at what results from Christ being supreme, what hinders us from remembering that Christ is supreme, and what helps remind us that Christ is supreme. Todd warned us about false teachers who would tell us that Christ isn't supreme and is just one of many other gods worthy of our worship. And in particular, he talked about the subtlety of false teaching and how it can masquerade so easily as the truth. Daniel then discussed how the supremacy of Christ leads to maturity as we grow, and that was echoed last week when we talked about resurrection as our starting place, death as the fuel of our daily struggle, leading to sanctification, maturity, 
and our new identity and the glory and the hope of our future, as his glory as the hope of our future. And today what we've tried to look at is some general and specific applications. The new identity leads to things we put off, things we put on in equality. Husbands and wives have new ways that they are to relate to one another. Children and parents to have a calling to new and better relationships under the supremacy of Christ. The intent of this series was to remind us that Jesus is supreme. And really, did we need reminding? I mean, we've observed, so all, of, all three of us have observed, that no one's going to disagree with that intellectually if you're a follower of Jesus. So the further intent of this series was to challenge us. Are we living in a way that reflects the fact that Jesus is supreme? If we are, then, Todd, Daniel, and I would suggest that we need to see a community knit together in love. We need to see individuals having full assurance. We need to see rejections of cultural mandates if they're at odds with biblical teaching. We need to see an absence of false teaching. We need to see a steady growth and maturity in sanctification. We should have actions, thoughts, and beliefs that we're putting off. We should have actions, thoughts, and beliefs that we're putting on. And we should have equality manifested by submission, respect, and love to and for one another. That's what God is calling us to in this letter to the Colossians. It's a big work and it's a hard work. It's an impossible work without the Holy Spirit. It will be imperfect and messy at times. But if we do try to live this way under the supremacy of Christ, then our community will truly be salt and light to a dying world. And we will attract those who are seeking meaning and fulfillment and joy. May the Spirit come and empower us as we live together under the supremacy of Christ. Amen.